Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash adherent apologetics. Thank you for joining us today. If you're joining us live, you're joining us on election night. So all kinds of fun stuff happening tonight. Uh, but here I'm joined by Blake Gunther. Uh, he runs the website Belief Math. He's a Christian apologist, been involved in many debates. And we're going to be talking about the problem of divine hiddenness today. A really interesting question. Blake's done some work into it, debated it, all kinds of things. But Blake, welcome. How are you doing? Doing good, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really ha- pumped to have you on. It should be fun. Um, just to start off, if you could just talk a little bit, like if people don't know who you are and like what you do, could you talk a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm, um, I don't have any, uh, at least advanced formal education um, and the stuff, but uh, I've been working in apologetics for decade and a half. Um, you know, it's very much part of my conversion story. And um, as I'm sure most listeners know, apologetics is all about uh, defending the faith, making the case for the, the truth of Christianity, helping answer those hard questions and getting people ultimately um, past the stumbling blocks to the gospel. Um, so uh, that's something I'm really passionate about. And, and that's what I focus on. I run a, a ministry called beliefmap.org. Uh, um, so the whole ministry is really located on the website itself. That's the tool. Um, and it's uh, it's meant to help uh, people, no matter what their background with apologetics is, to sort of be able to jump in and navigate the site the same way that they would a live conversation with an, an apologetics expert. So it branches as a conversation between green and red, and you sort of get to choose your own path. It feels just like having a dialogue. And you can mm-hmm. either use that to... Um, learn yourself, you know, Oh, what would he say if I said this, or you can use it in live conversations to become a better apologist without knowing anything. I I like to say my mom could jump on the computer and defend the resurrection as long as she has this tool up. So um, that's what I focus on. It's my, it's very much my passion and, and, you know, trying to equip Christians. I've done a few debates, um, but that's, you know, I, I don't focus on that as much. And, and yeah, one of the topics that I've, researched a lot for um for belief map was divine hiddenness i spent several months researching that and and cataloging the debate on that issue yeah belief map is such a valuable resource i found it it's just like when i'm looking at questions or things like that it's a great place to just start an exploration and to objections and there's always links to papers and books and such and there's just it's amazing it helps remind me of just how much material there is out there in terms of these apologetics questions like the problem of divine hiddenness so you talked a little bit about kind of like coming to faith through apologetics you almost could say like what got you interested in like apologetics philosophy these big worldview questions um, it would have been when I first heard the case for the truth of Christianity. Um, I was in high school and, um, so this is my first exposure to apologetics and I thought, holy smokes, this stuff that I believed as a religion is actually true. Um, and that got me really excited. Uh, so I, uh, you know, noticed that apologetics is connected to philosophy, to history, to everything. And, um, uh, I found an old website called Karm.org, uh, run by mm. an apologist named Matt Slick, and I was like, "This is the best stuff ever!" <laughs> and he had a chat room there, and so I spent a long time um, as a participant in that chat room, learning from apologists originally, and just engaging in conversations a lot. And over time, I built in my notes system, 
and it turned into a really advanced note system, <laughs> which would allow me to, you know, pull up quotes at relevant junctures of the conversation. And that's ultimately what was transformed into belief map. Um, so. Yeah, good stuff. So obviously you spent a few months cataloging like this problem of divine hiddenness. There's a lot of literature, a lot of different ways that you can go through this. Just for people listening, we're going to talk a little bit about different sides of it, maybe a more logical form of it, a more emotional side, things like all kinds of directions. We'll also answer your questions at the end if you have live questions. But like with the problem of divine hiddenness, like what got you so interested in like looking at like the philosophical literature and like the questions surrounding um, this important topic? Well, like you say, there's sort of a lay version and then there's, there are more academic renditions of it. Um, I was, you know, really interested in the, the problem of, of like hell, uh, honestly, is how I would have first seen it and what caught my interest. It's like, well, why are people um, going to be judged when they haven't heard of Jesus? You know, that kind of, that launched me into the general genre of hiddenness argumentation and then you come to what the formal sort of argument is, which is more along the lines of um, if, and it's not about the Christian God, it's about any God. And the general issue is if God is all loving, then he's going to make sure that there are, there is nothing preventing you from just entering into a loving relationship by just trying. And nevertheless, lo and behold, there's all this, or there are all these people that face one, at least one big stumbling block that prevents them from being able to freely just enter into a relationship. And that's, they don't believe in God. Well, if God can't even pass that first hurdle, then how can we say he's loving? He, he at least should have given them belief so that they didn't have that particular stumbling block. So he must not be very interested in, in uh, bringing about relationships. Well, if God's not all loving, then that would suggest that God doesn't exist at all. And that's the argument. Um, and I was in, you know, that's fascinating. And it just turned out to have a, a ton of stuff written on it. Um, and I love philosophy. So once I got started, I couldn't stop uh, just reading about it. <laughs> a drug almost. Philosophy can almost be like a drug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very much so. So what we'll do is we'll just kind of walk through uh, the problem of divine hiddenness in different forms. Um, so we'll start with like just the logical form. I believe um, J.L. Schellenberger is a big proponent of this in a sense where they'll argue that like the idea of an all loving God and this kind of like divine hiddenness is just logically incompatible. Like you couldn't have this. If there's an all loving God, he would make sure that um, everyone would know that he's there in a sense. He wouldn't be hidden um, or so it would seem to everyone. So when we're tackling the logical problem, just saying that these two ideas are completely like incompatible, loving God and divine hiddenness. Like how do you approach that and kind of look at that important question? Um, Schellenberg has offered different renditions of his argument. His first logical form, deductive form, like made reference to things like inculpable non-belief. And then he gave an updated version of it. And one of the biggest challenges I find with Schellenberg is he's his he uses terminology in unorthodox ways, and a lot of philosophers have, have critiqued him for this. Um, he like almost tries to make his premises trivial because of how he defines terms. So I actually found that his his form of the argument is just obscures the whole issue pretty badly, and you can get a better understanding of what the argument is by reframing it using language that. Uh, or using words that mean what they normally mean. Um, so, I mean, I, could, I can kind of lay out for you what that argument looks like if you want. 
Yeah, I think it'd be great kind of just walk through like a logical form of the problem of divine hiddenness and just kind of like how we'd respond to it. Yeah. All right. Well, let me, I'll, I'll throw out, this is not Schellenberg's version yet. I'm going to give you one version so that, you know, just to whet your appetite and then I'll tell you how Schellenberg modifies it and I'll go after that. But if you really want to just use normal everyday language to understand what the argument is, it goes like this. Premise one, if God exists, God is all good. Premise two, if God is all good, God is perfectly loving. Premise three, so if God exists, God is perfectly loving. That's a sub-conclusion. Four, but a perfectly loving God would ensure everyone is always able to be in relationship with God just by trying. Five, and that ability requires belief that God exists. Six, so therefore God would ensure all believe. Seven, so if God exists, all persons believe God exists. Eight, but not everyone believes that. Nine, so no God has ensured everyone believes it. Ten, so no God has ensured everyone is able to be in such a relationship just by trying. Eleven, so no perfectly loving God exists. Twelve, so no all good ex good God exists. Thirteen, so God in general does not exist because those are supposed to be essential properties of God. So that's sort of a, a quick version of it. Um, but one objection really jumps out uh, quickly to this version. Um, and it would go a, a bit like this is, hey, don't forget that there are clearly resistant non-believers. Um, these are people who, upon coming to belief in God, would just immediately and always say no thanks to God or to a relationship with him. Um, and this is relevant because in the argument, God's specified motivation was to ensure that everyone uh, believes or is allowed to be in relationship through belief. Um, and obviously for the resistant non-believer, God just doesn't have that motivation. If God knows that Joe over here is just going to say no thanks to relationship, why should we think that God is going to make him believe or become a theist? It would be pointless. So I, I remember um, watching a debate here. There was a live debate in Dallas between Dan Barker and a, a friend of mine named Justin Bass. And I, I remember I grabbed this quote from Dan where he says, even if I agreed with Dr. Bass 100%, and he said some other stuff, and he said, I would, I would still reject that being as a Lord of my life because I'm better than that. Mm. Um, I cannot accept Jesus as Lord. So this is a problem because the way I framed the hiddenness argument before it's just clearly false that God would ensure that Dan has everything he needs to believe because that would be pointless. Why would he? God knows that Dan would just immediately reject relationship. So you might want to modify it. Um, and that's what Schellenberg does. He strengthens it essentially by saying all creatures capable of explicit and positively meaningful relationship with God uh, would have not uh, who have not freely shut themselves off from God. Those are the people who God would make sure have belief. He would at least make sure that all of those people are theists, and that's where we we go from there. Hmm. So I think that um, when tackling the logical problem, at least I think it's important to emphasize the idea of just like. Um, non-resistant non-believers like uh you know a lot of atheists would claim or just non-christians in general that they're a non-resistant um non-believers if there is a truly loving god and they they'd say that they're open to it and if there is this loving god he would come and reveal himself to them because they truly would um come into christ uh or something along those lines if they 
felt that God wasn't didn't seem hidden. So like when looking at like the idea of like non-resistant non-believers, why are there non-resistant non-believers kind of looking at that aspect of divine hiddenness? What what was the question? What was that last? Kind of like how do we look? At, how do you look at like the problem of like non-resistant non-believers in regards to like divine hiddenness? Well, th yeah, that would be, um, uh, yeah, I guess the whole topic of what we're going through here. So <laughs> I would, if I were in a discussion with someone, I would say, look, there are a number of reasons for hiddenness, even to people who might be open to um, being in a relationship with God. Um, and these, so I think I've got uh, five, four, four at least big categories um, and each of these categories have subpoints, and especially like reason number two and reason number three have a number of subpoints. But broad reason uh, uh, number two here would would be this: um, some non-believers, you know, so if someone's coming to me and say, "Hey, why, why?" Here's you know Joe over here. He would believe or and be in relationship with God. Excuse me. He would be in relationship with God if only God revealed himself to him. So why doesn't God reveal himself to him? And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to say, man, there's there's all sorts of reasons it could be. Here's an example of one. Um, some non-believers in their current state would just form a perpetually improper relationship with God. Um, and it could be an improper relationship where, for example, the human Joe here uh, won't ever believe or trust God as all good. Okay, maybe they'll just never agree or, or trust with or trust God's reasons for um, allowing suffering or they'll just never agree with God when it comes to an issue like homosexuality. Mm -hmm. If God condemns that. Um, so these people just are never, never on board with God's goodness. They never believe that. And that very plausibly would be an eternally improper relationship, one that would be better to not exist at all. Um, that would constitute a lingering evil in the world. Um, if, if God entered, if God perpetuated those people, um, another example of an improper relationship would be one where the human always rejects moral transformation. So one of the most important things when submitting your life to Christ is saying, look, I, I submit myself to you entirely. I'm not holding anything back. Um, uh, you are God, you are Lord. And some people just won't do that. <laughs> You know, they'll be like, all right, I'll be in a relationship with you, but you're you're not going to be my God. Mm -hmm. um, and that, too, is very plausibly an improper relationship, the kind that might be better to not exist at all uh, from God's eye. Um, another example is uh, someone who um, might say that uh, or might accept moral transformation. But as I alluded to just a minute ago that or just a second ago, that they'll never accept uh God as their God. So that's the one I, I just meant or just mentioned a second ago. Um, something else that might end up happening and, and Travis Dumsday published a whole paper on this is interestingly, humans can uh, theoretically at least think that um, the power shouldn't belong to God and they can grow jealous of God's power. And he talks about uh, the story of Satan. If you, if you take that seriously at all, and it seems plausible this is an individual, Satan, who um, is quite aware of God's existence, but nevertheless uh, didn't enter into a proper relationship with God. And he, in fact, grew jealous of God uh, as a result of that state. So that would be um, 
an example of an improper relationship that God might not want to get started in the first place. So these are all things that might be true of Joe right now. So it's not enough to say, hey, Joe, or why isn't God making his existence clear to Joe? Um, because you need to show that Joe doesn't satisfy each and every one of these. And sometimes that's really hard to do. Another thing um, you need to consider is, is what if uh, Joe will just never love God? Maybe Joe will be like, hey, you know what? You're God. Um, you're ruler. You're so you're all that. But Joe just has no affection whatsoever for God. Um, or maybe Joe just wants to, you know, he, he's he's doing the Christian like things just because he wants gifts. You know, oh, I just want to go to heaven. Or I just want these religious experiences. That's all it is for me. These are examples that are at least plausibly improper relationships. And in, in our hypothetical person, Joe here, maybe he's situated such that if he found out God existed, that's as far as his relationship would go. Um, is these very, very superficial states that would never go further. Um, and in each of these cases, God would have a reason to refrain from ensuring Joe comes to belief. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm totally tracking with you. And I, I mean, I've looked at like your website before looking at things. Uh, it's very useful because a lot of these things that you're talking about, I've read or heard before, like on your website or other places. And it's really helpful um, just you putting together all these different answers to these important questions. I'd love to talk a little bit about like the evidential problem because I think this is a lot more prominent, especially along uh, like online circles or just like uh, in terms of like maybe some atheistic philosophers where mm-hmm. – um, what they'll say is something along the lines of a hidden God is consistent with atheism. That being God does not exist. A hidden God is less consistent with theism that God exists. So if it seems like that, like there is no God, because it seems like God is hidden to me, then it, it makes sense that there just is no God. So how would you respond when it's, this idea is not taking really necessarily a logical form, more of like an evidential form? Um, I mean, almost any argument that's deductive can be turned into an inductive argument and vice versa. Um, Deductive arguments are particularly good at exposing sort of the assumptions. Um, So it can give you like a clean area to disagree with. And when I gave you that deductive argument, I mean, you can sort of imagine in your head what it would be like in an inductive form. It would be the same thing. It would be, you know, you just notice that, um, that non-belief is kind of surprising on the hypothesis that uh, that God exists. Why would it be surprising? Well, because it, it would sure seem like God would want to make sure relationships are easily available, and he hasn't even made um, belief in his own existence the first hurdle. He hasn't even you know gotten rid of that. So the inductive argument would just point to the fact that non-believers exist and say that that's surprising on the God hypothesis, mm-hmm. um, and it would leave implicit why. Uh, so it's not it's not functionally different. In this case, I would respond to them the same way. Um, if you have a deductive argument in front of you, all that would mean is maybe you can point to a specific premise that you're disagreeing with. But I would give the same sort of answer. I would I would I would go through saying, look, this isn't really good evidence. This isn't that surprising that non-believers exist. Why? Well, because it's very plausibly the case that for any given non-believer you point at, um, if they were brought into belief at this point, then they would enter into a perpetually improper relationship. Mm. So, so be, go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah. You finish. You... Well, so, I mean, all I would do at that point is I would, I would open that up. And if that didn't satisfy them, then I'd move on to the next reason. Um, the next category 
um, which I labeled number two. And then I would also add on number three. Uh, so I would just, I, I have got, you know, and that's part of what belief map does for you. When you get on the page, the, the divine hiddenness page, it gives you these categories of responses. Um, and I think when someone goes through them, the impression is, Hey, the divine hiddenness argument, it kind of lost its teeth. It's not, it's not very intimidating anymore. Mm. Um, wait, did you have something else you were to say? I don't want to cut you off. No, that's it. Okay. Just making sure. Um, so how would you respond? I mean, I think Matt Dillahunty will often bring this up as someone you debated where it's like something along the lines of, you know, God, it seems like God is so good at playing hide and seek or something like that. So, um, when you hear like this idea that like, you know, you hear it online a lot or from different people, like God's just playing a game of hide and seek. And, uh, to me personally, not like speaking as Zach, just speaking as like representing an atheist. It just seems like God's playing hide and seek. Cause I, I don't see him. Um, so like, is, was there any, would there be any different kind of approach when you hear kind of like, like hide and seek rhetoric or something else along those lines? Cause I think it's something that comes up a lot in these kind of discussions. I mean, in those situations, the first thing, I don't know if I did this with Matt, but the first thing I always try to do is ask them to lay down premises. Cause I, I don't understand the argument just yet. You know, that's one of the challenges with the rhetoric is you can think they're trying to say one thing. And then when you try to pin it down, it turns out they're doing this other thing over here. And that's why it's really important in philosophy to be clear about what your argument is. So when someone says, well, it seems like God's just playing hide and seek. I would want them to flesh out what exactly the problem is. What are they saying precisely? Um, Cause I don't know what to attack just yet. Um, you know, trying to be charitable, uh, you know, the best I can do is try to reinterpret what they're saying and, and frame it back in Schellenberg's verbiage that, well, maybe by playing hide and seek, it's like God isn't making his existence clear. Well, why would he make his, his existence clear? Well, because that would allow people to enter into a relationship with him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now we're just back at Schellenberg's argument. <laughs> um, so otherwise I don't, it maybe you're, maybe you are attuned to some other nuance to that that verbiage that I'm missing out on. Um, Cause otherwise I would just want to push it back into Schellenberg's ver verbiage. No, I think, I think I'm completely on the same page as you. Cause I think a lot of times, um, especially in just different rhetoric, it's more of just like this kind of just using words and not really putting this into any sort of like syllogistic form. Um, so I think it'd be pretty similar to like an argument that Schellenberg makes or something along those lines. So um, with non-believers, I think there's one more point I want to get to before we talk about like Christian divine hiddenness, because obviously there's a lot of Christians that have written and talked about this. But like, uh, how would you respond to like maybe like an atheist that's not necessarily or a non-believer who just isn't really trying to argue against God from divine hiddenness, but just wonders kind of like, well, if God is real, why wouldn't he reveal himself to me or something along those lines? Not necessarily trying to make any sort of case against uh, theism or a belief in God, but just someone who honestly is just not sure and doesn't understand why God would seem hidden to them if God truly does exist. Yeah. And whenever someone asks a question like that, whether it's related to hiddenness or evil, when it's just question, it's just curiosity. And that's outside of the domain of the apologist as such. Mm -hmm. uh, the apologist is here. He is, um, he is responding to arguments against God's existence. And here we just have curiosity. It's not even a challenge. It's just like, Hey, I'm curious why. And I, I'm not going to claim to know why. There could be any number of reasons why, for any given non-believer, God hasn't revealed himself to that individual yet. Um, that's part of what I was doing when I mentioned those things. Well, one sort of reason is that um, uh, the individual 
might just right away enter into a perpetually improper relationship. And sometimes this is a relationship that if God had just waited a bit longer and let that person go through some other circumstances in life, then they would be primed to enter into a proper everlasting relationship. And so it's it's in the interest of both God and this person for God to wait just a little bit and then to ensure that the person comes to believe. Because now they'll enter into a proper relationship and they're, and they're saved. Whereas, again, if God acted earlier, the person would have just rejected it or would have entered into an improper relationship. And that's no good. Mm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about like Christian divine hiddenness for a second. Um, obviously, there's lots of Christians over time who have wrought, who've, sorry, not wrought, that's not a word, uh, written just kind of wondering like why God would seem hidden to them. Um, obviously, on like more of a personal level, I know you're more focused on like the apologetic side responding to more like uh, deductive, logical arguments from like divine hiddenness and such. But like to the Christian who looks at this problem of divine hiddenness and wonders like, why would God still seem like hidden to me, even if I believe in him and I'm in this kind of like relationship with him? But it seems like sometimes it doesn't seem like he's there. So like, like when you look at this from like a Christian perspective, like how does your answer to like the problem of divine hiddenness differ? Yeah, man, Zach, I tell you, I'm, I would want to pull up some notes probably and try to try to think that through because there has been a lot written on it, but that, that is um, less a, a concern for apologetics a lot of the time. Cause that sound, that's the emote that's closer to, you know how Craig talks about the emotional problem of evil. Mm -hmm. the yeah. Evil, that's a lot closer to the emotional problem, uh, I think. Um, and yeah, I'm you know just from reading about the the atheistic arguments, you know, I, I hear authors talking about that problem quite a bit, and I'm, I'm trying to remember some of the things they said. But right, it's kind of like you know those dark nights of the soul. Mm -hmm. them. You know, how do you deal with that sort of thing as a as a Christian, and what you know, why does God do it in the first place? Really, really interesting questions. Some people I, I know have talked about the value of um, of longing. Uh, so, in other words, we're going to be in a situation where, in the future, we're going to perpetually be with God. His presence is going to be inescapable. Um, and so, don't worry. There's a ton of time coming. This is one of those. Uh, those times early on where you really get to be free in the fullest sense um, in, in deciding who you are and and what you're going to commit to, uh, where your allegiances will be. And, and there's something about um, making that decision uh, to follow God, even if it doesn't feel like, you know, maybe God's responding the way you want him to. But um, the relationship's all the sweeter when it finally reaches that that deepest level um, or that most explicit level in the afterlife. So I think people have talking about, about things like that. It's, you know, if you go on my website and look at all the responses to that more apologetics can, uh, uh, oriented version, you know, I think I've got like 20 different sources listed and these are all different, you know, categories of response. And you're going to find the same thing. If you go and look up the, this more, you know, Christian centric version um or or issue mm. yeah i mean yeah i think that you're very right and in terms of a lot of like the logical forms of divine hiddenness or the evidential forms where it comes more inductive it seems like there's a lot of really good answers and i think a lot of the objections to divine hiddenness really come from a more emotional perspective which kind of just brings a, a different answer so 
just trying to think. One thing that comes up through these questions of divine hiddenness is the idea of free will and kind of like um, God's hiddenness in a sense can give us gives us a chance to ha- exercise free will. And mm-hmm. like a lot of theodicies often will place a high value on free will. So I'd love if you could just talk for a minute, like what's so important about free will? Because I think when we're looking at like the problem of suffering or divine hiddenness, free will comes up a lot because at least from a theist point of view, it seems like a very valuable gift. So like what's so great about free will? Like why does it matter um, in these kinds of debates? Yeah, I think a lot of uh, apologists underestimate the importance of of free will. Uh, The value of it is it's part of what makes us resemble God. We are created in the image of God, and part of that involves our our being free, the way God is free. Um, you know, God could have created the world any number of ways, and he freely chose to do it this way, or in the way it was at the beginning. Um, and, and that's, you know, an essential feature of God. You can't take it away. And if we're going to be, quote-unquote, children of God, that's part of what makes us God-like. It's what it, insofar as value is derived from resembling God, um, to take away our free will is to take away, take away value of who we are. So it's extremely important from the Christian perspective. And of course, there's something innate, something or, or very intuitive about the value of free will. You ask, you know, people cross culturally how they feel about it. And yeah, you know, love, you know, is different. Um, you know, there, it, it gets, it gets its value from being freely chosen, right? Um, so no, lo- love is. I, I don't think there's not there's not going to be much dispute. I think about the value of free of free will, um, and yeah, how does it factor into the hiddenness argument? Well, among those categories I was talking about, one of the next categories would be, hey, you know, even if people enter enter uh, might not enter into a relationship immediately, then you got some people who would leave proper relationship later. God wouldn't enter into a relationship with those or ensure that they believe. Um, some people, uh, though, would enter into a proper relationship and would even stay there. You might say, for all we know, well, why wouldn't God reveal himself to all of those people? Well, there's when uh, some philosophers talk about the potential greater goods. Uh, so in other words, there could be a greater good in not revealing himself to these people, even if they would enter into a proper relationship, because in not doing so, you get this benefit over here. For example, Craig likes to talk about the benefit that maybe even more people freely come to to know and love God for eternity. So if you know, if logically God has to choose one or the other, God is free to choose the situation where more people freely come to know and love him. Um, but uh, in the case of free will, uh, like Michael Murray has written a paper um, where he, yeah, he spends a lot of time talking about free will. And the idea here is, is that if God right now made his existence imposingly clear to you, to me, to atheists everywhere who would no longer be atheists, of course, then you get this bad result. What's the bad result? Well, it almost seems like you have a divine highway patrolman on your back at every moment of the day. And in that sense, in order for free will to really be free, you need to have tension. You need to have, you need to be torn between multiple choices. Um, You need to feel that, oh, I want to do this and I want to do this. um, And now I've just got to choose. Okay. Free will arises in situations like that. Well, if you know that God's on your back the whole time, so to speak, 
uh, that can create a situation where there's just no free will in the world, uh, no exercise of free will, and that would diminish the amount of moral behavior on the planet. And that's something that I think God wants to wants to flourish uh, on on planet Earth. Um, so that would be a an example of a reason why God might remain hidden in the category of well, there are these greater goods that come about as a result of God's being hidden. Hmm. Um, so well, I'd like to do one more question here and then we'll go to a little bit of q and I saw a few questions. Um, we'll, we'll take some more. Is yeah. Where would you point people to look at these questions? Maybe first from like in terms of like, I'm thinking like in terms of like resources regarding like divine hiddenness, maybe first from like a logical evidential side um, and maybe second from like a more like emotional side, like the problem of divine hiddenness. Like where would you point people to go? Obviously your, your website is a great start. I'd highly recommend it. But like beyond that for like books or articles and such, like where, do, where should people go to look at um, answering some of these important questions? Well, I don't know any books that are focused on the emotional problem as much. I haven't, I just haven't spent no time on, on researching that, but for the, um, the sort of apologetics oriented version, um, the logical and evidential would, I would just collapse them together. They, nobody, nobody really distinguishes them in the literature. As far as I'm aware, they, you know, you get the gist of the argument and they respond pretty much the same way. Um, and for that, I would check out the bibliography I just mentioned on beliefmap.org. You've got a lot of good resources there. There's a book called Divine Hiddenness New Essays, where you have contributions from some of the leading thinkers on this. And so I would recommend Peter Van Inwagen's article. I forget the title of it, but it's in there. Um, and Howard Snyder's got an article in there that I remember is really good. Um, and yeah, honestly, the, the simplest way I think right now to access that material is just to jump on belief map and, and explore it kind of like you were debating the tip, the topic yourself, because I, I, I've already combed through all that material and kind of crystallized it into conversational form. So that would be the best way. I always, when anybody's studying apologetics, I always send them to Dr. Craig, um, Dr. Craig's ministry, reasonablefaith.org. He's always got good content, and his response to hiddenness is is great. Uh, and that's you know if you're if you're training to be an apologist, that's who I'd send you to 100 of the time. Always can go to good old Dr. Craig. Uh, we had a little bit of questions here on our way out. I saw a few, and if you have more, be sure to put them in. Um, the first one is a super chat. Thank you so much for your super chat, Fredo. Really appreciate your support. Uh, he says, if God is active in the world while being um, transcendent, how is a be belief in non-belief unjustifiable if we make it analogous to an answer from Christianity? So, just, okay, if God is active in the world while being transcendental, and I'll have to ask what he means by transcendental. How is a belief in non-belief unjustifiable? I have no idea what that what he means by that question. How is a belief in non-belief unjustifiable? Uh, if we make it analogous to answer from Christianity. Man, I want to answer this, but I honestly don't know what it's asking. Yeah. Um, so it says non-belief um unjustifiable. So we have like almost like a double negative. It says, How is a belief unjustifiable? Um, if we make it analogous to Christianity, not completely sure. Uh, maybe he can type a little bit more into the chat and you can just the regular chat and eat. Maybe yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, Fredo, if you have, would love to clarify, we'd love to go to it. We'll go to some other questions for the moment though. Um, John DePew has it going. John says, uh, what concrete examples does Blake have of, of, of 
have of people saying to God, I'll be in a relationship with you, but not as my God. Hey, Jonathan. Yeah, um, you should know in philosophy, um, you don't need to give examples in order to talk about real possibilities. So I, I, I mean, for what it's worth, I'm sure there are examples of actually, you know what? I do know an example. Um, there was in the Karm chat room I, I spoke of, there was a, a guy, I forget his name. He was homosexual. He believed in God. Um, he wanted to be in, you know, he, he wanted to relate to God, but for him, God was not the authority. And, you know, he actually wrestled quite a bit with that. But um, in the end, yeah, he, he continued to believe in God, continued to do that, like the idea of relationship. But um, the kingship of God, the lordship of God was something that was off of his radar. Now, I'm just lucky with that example. <laughs> okay. You have to understand in philosophy, you don't need examples. It's enough for us to see the complete coherence of uh, this class of people. Um, and in addition to the coherence, I would say it's also quite plausible. You know, a lot of times possibilities are not plausible. In other words, you won't find these counterexamples or examples in the real world. But it's enough that they obtain in possible worlds, the way, ways things could have been. But in this case, not only do we have a real world example, it turns out to be quite plausible, which makes me think there's the guy. I didn't meet the single one guy out there who satisfies this class. There's going to be a lot of people who fit in this class in the real world right now. And only as a third backup will I point out that even if there were no examples in the real world, it's enough to say that it's, it's perfectly possible. I think if, if you're if you're raising that would be yeah if you're raising this argument that God would definitely reveal Himself to anyone, that's the claim. The original claim was God would make sure no one disbelieves, and if you're gonna stand by that claim, you've got to cover the gaps in your argument. And a gap in the argument would be, well, what if this kind of person existed? And you need to logically close off that gap. Schellenberg, for example, needs to logically close off that gap, and he he never did it. So those are my, I would point out those three things. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and thank you for your question, John. Um, next question here is from Slam Ryan. It says, I hear a lot, why doesn't God do miracles that can be well documented? And she talks about um, just like her response. But be curious, here's the response. Oftentimes this will be phrased in like, why doesn't God heal an amputee? Um, something along those lines. So when someone says, why doesn't God heal an amputee? Or like, why doesn't God do miracles that are well documented? Like, how do you respond? Yeah. And I'll first say that, um, the divine hiddenness argument can be completely obliterated. And this argument could still be really interesting because it's sort of a different argument. I can see the relationship, but it's a different argument. Um, and it would in particular probably, yeah, it might influence Christians a little more than a lot of other kinds of theists, um, especially because in Christianity we have miracles, uh, you know, like healings and stuff that are recorded in the New Testament. So it's like, why doesn't God do that more often? And there's a few responses. One is to say there's actually quite a few of these that um, you just don't hear about because they seem so exceptional, right? Um, uh, and, and what the challenge with being exceptional is people don't like to publish them uh, because it's really it's really hard to get them published because you can't you can't get people to believe they happen in the first place because they're so rare. They're actually scientific phenomena that have gone through the same issue. On, and, Fortunately, they're common enough, even uh, uh, like the sun dog uh, phenomenon. That was like, a, you know, you had to get a ton of testimonies from people and like photographic evidence before, I, as I recall, they really, you know, took it seriously. 
There are examples like that. Unfortunately, in the case of miracles, it's even more sporadic. And we have the additional problem that there are a lot of false positives. And if you don't know what that means, it means a lot of people are claiming there are miracles that occur, which turn out when you look into them aren't really true miracles. So it, it ends up being extremely difficult for us to publish any particular miracle and say, look, here it is. It's true. And, and take it seriously, not in my opinion, because miracles never happen, but because it's just really you've got all these hurdles that we have to overcome. But there is a book by a fellow named uh, Craig Keener, one of my favorite researchers on the planet. Um, the guy is stupidly smart, um, too smart. One of those people that's too smart. Um, and <clears throat> he has a book called Miracles. It's two volumes, and he documents uh, these miracle claims really well. Um, and he doesn't claim to endorse every single one of them, but he says he believes that plenty of them are are true. Um, now, again, they run into the same sorts of problems that any miracle claims does, but the evidence on balance seems to point to their occurrence. This is two volumes where he goes into depth as a professional researcher looking into these. So I'd point you to his book, Miracles. That's Craig Keener. You can look up on Amazon. Yeah, Craig Keener's insane. Four volumes on Acts, two volumes on Miracles. The dude is yeah. something else. Um, See, Fredo um, clarified his question here. He says, um, if God is active in, in the world as um, the belief in Christian faith, how is it the same? How is the same God transcendental to say um, atheism or lack of belief is false if God is hidden outside of the natural world? So I think See, Fredo's saying um, we don't see God in the natural world. So, like, wouldn't it, why can we say that atheism or like a lack of belief would be false if we can't like see God or something maybe more like on an empirical basis? I think that's what he's saying. I could be. Well, a, a lack of belief can't be false because that's, it's not a truth claim. Um, it can't be true or false. Uh, so now I'm trying to understand what, what what's going on there. Um, if God is active in the world, so in other words, if God is, um, you know, maybe performing miracles one way or another, let's say, if God is performing miracles and stuff, how is the same God transcendental? How is the same transcend? Maybe he means the same transcendent God. How is yeah, the same transcendent God? Uh, or how, how are we going to say that atheism is false if miracles occur? Maybe that's what he means. If God is, if God is hidden, if God, if hidden, if a hidden God is outside the natural world, maybe he's actually trying to help us. Maybe he's saying like, why are there, uh, if there are miracles that are still happening, um, why are there atheists saying that they don't believe because they're, because God is active in the world. Um, and my response would be, well, you know, obviously a lot of these atheists don't believe that miracles are occurring. Um, but you can believe in God without seeing miracles as well. So that wouldn't be what it what it depends on. Now, I may not be understanding your question, but that's my, my best shot. Yeah, and if you want to clarify, see if you have a little bit more time. So if you want to squeeze that question in quickly, um, we can probably clarify a little bit more. Um, we'll go to another question here from Benjamin Bethel who says, uh, because of divine hiddenness and the problem of evil, don't you think it's God's fault that people fail to trust in him and not fully embrace him as Lord and Savior? Do you think it's God's fault that people fail to trust in him? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd call it a fault that you um, 
that you failed to trust in him. Maybe you would. Uh, maybe you could categorize that as a fault. Um, but in that case, the Christians, the, the Christians who would endorse that and say it is a fault would go on to say that, in fact, you have an obligation to believe in God and you're just being irrational. Why are you being irrational? Well, because deep down in our hearts, we know that there's a God. Um, we suppress that knowledge. Uh, some people would cite Romans, uh, uh, particular interpretations of Roman, Romans 1. Um, these are the people who would mo be quickest to say that it's an actual fault of yours that you don't believe. But if you're catering to that camp, then you've also got to take the rest of what they say and admit that, well, it's because you're being irrational. It's, it's actually your fault um, that you don't believe because uh, God, God has revealed himself clearly through, through the world. Uh, Alvin Planting is published on the uh, a proper operation of your census divinitatis, your sense of divinity that all humans who are healthy um, feel. <clears throat> and that is, you know, you will look out at the, the night sky, and even if you can't, like, form it into a specific argument, you should be able to just recognize that God exists. Kind of like, how do you know, you know, what did you have for breakfast? Uh, blueberry pancakes. Well, how do you know that? <laughs> well, I mean, I just thought about it. And it seemed like it was occasioned, you know, we'll call that memory, but it was occasioned and I was uh, functioning properly when the answer blueberry pancakes came to my mind. Well, that proper function is the kind of thing that Plantigo would say is operational when uh, someone comes to naturally believe in God. And he'll also point to lots of studies that show that humans are very naturally inclined to believe in God or gods, something out there, something teleological greater than us um, and minded. Uh, and so it would be a case of irrationality, actually, rather than rather than a fault of God. Hmm. Uh, Susan just clarified saying, I do think, just so you know, Blake, that miracles are not hidden, um, nor is God. Uh, cool. <laughs> uh, welcome. Glad you're listening, Susan. Um, well, I mean, that's like all the questions we have. So unless um, there's any clarifications or stuff, we'll start to head towards sort of wrapping things up here. Uh, Blake, is there any kind of like last thoughts you want to have, things you didn't get to say, anything like that before we uh, wrap things up here? No, just say it's a super interesting topic. Um, and I think it gave you some resources to look into. And I will once again push you towards uh, checking out Wayne Wayne Craig's material at reasonablefaith.org. Uh, and beliefmap.org is a great place to explore debates and really learn them very quickly so that you can use them in your own conversations. Yeah, I'd second that. I just encourage everyone to check out. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you know who William Lane Craig is. So I'm sure I can always encourage you to check out his work. And then with Blake's work, a great place to kind of interact in conversation. And there's so much, uh, just so many good links to so many good resources regarding these deep questions and just all aspects of Christian apologetics, not just like problems like divine hiddenness. So, uh, Blake, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And if people want, like want to follow you or your work, uh, obviously there's belief map. Is there any way they can follow you and see what, see what else you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. Follow me on or add belief map to your favorites. Uh, watch it grow. Um, feel free to add me. I'm on Facebook, you know, and I, if you have any questions, I, I like to, to talk to people about that sort of stuff. So it's part of my ministry and I'm happy to do it and connect with people. So feel free to send me a message.
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Blake. I'd encourage you um, all again one more time. Check the belief map. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Susan, Moshe, Fredo, Nate, Dito, everyone else that turned in. Thank you so much for your time. As always, if you're new to Hearing Up Jokes, I'd encourage you to like and subscribe and leave a review if you're listening via podcast or all that fun stuff. And if you enjoy the show, you can support the show. We're about 75% funded, so appreciate everyone's support. Patreon.com slash Hearing Up Jokes. You can support for like one, two, five dollars a month. All your support means a lot. Um, Blake, one more time, thank you so much for your time on this election night where it seems like everyone's going to be glued to the televisions for your time tonight. Right, right. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you.